0: Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee.
1: Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee? Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee.
0: Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry.
1: Welcome to episode 27 of Unknown Orbits. Beetlejuice Bridge by William Ten. I'm Patrick Baird.
0: I'm Steve Reitze.
1: Tonight we're going to talk about a story called Beetlejuice Bridge. Or is it Beetle Geis Bridge? Beetle Beetlejeez. Maybe you can explain the proper pronunciation of that word.
0: If you go to Wikipedia, you can spend all day long reading about this if you want. First of all, the disagreement is twofold. Is the first syllable beetle or betel, And is the second syllable juice or geese? That gives you a combination of what, four different... Four different pronunciations, potentially. Now, in looking into this, I discovered that the International Astronomical Union, I think it's yes. called, that approves names for things, mm-hmm. they have officially approved the spelling for Beetlejuice, but they have officially said, we don't cover pronunciations. And in the case of this one in particular, since it amounted to an unofficial name for the star for so long, in so many places, they say you go by the local pronunciation. All of which means, according to them, anything you care to make up is just fine. And I have one last point. I swear up and down, and there's a couple of other internet denizens that agree with me, that before the movie Beetlejuice came out, it was commonly pronounced Beetle-geese.
1: I'll take your word for it. I don't remember that.
0: I will try very hard, though, to accept Beetlejuice in this conversation. Well, but good, it is be- changing some old because habits. Because that's
1: what I'm going to use is Beetlejuice, because otherwise I'll stumble over my own tongue trying to say it any other way. So, at any rate, Beetlejuice Bridge is a story about snail-like aliens landing in a cow pasture in the United States. The government rounds up a Madison Avenue public relations team to give them the job of selling the aliens to the American people. So their landing is kept a secret from the American people for like a month or more. During that time, protagonist of the story is finding ways to market and sell the aliens to the American people. One of the first things they do is they name the two snail-like aliens Andy and Dandy. So they are making Andy and Dandy dolls and Andy and Dandy scooters and Andy and Dandy cocktail glasses. They're scheduling interviews on big TV shows with the aliens. They are having friendly Journalists write articles about the uh, two snails. They sanction a comic strip about the Andy and Dandy. So they do everything that you would have done in the 1950s to sell something new to the American people. And it works. They reveal their presence to the people. People are thrilled rather than horrified. They get ticker tape parades down Madison Avenue and they pose with Hollywood starlets. They do a world tour where they're meeting dignitaries from all around the world. And the whole thing is going swimmingly for quite a while. And then during an overseas interview, they disclose that on their planet in the Betelgeuse system, they have a life extender. So they go through a process where their life gets extended on a regular basis to give them near immortality. And that also cures all disease and makes them very healthy. So the greedy denizens of Earth demand, well, we want that technology too. And the snails say, well, we'll give it to you in exchange for all the radioactive material on Earth. And they quickly agree. There's not even a moment's hesitation. So a few months later, spaceships full of the revitalizing devices arrive and are distributed and Lo and behold, they work, and they're revitalizing and curing diseases, and the Earth people are very happy. But then they discover that the fuel that drives the revitalizing devices is radioactive material, which they just gave away the entire Earth's supply to the snail people. So the whole thing was a con job. So The whole thing was a con job. Thus, the name Beetlejuice Bridge is a reference to the con of I'm going to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge
0: God, I feel like such an idiot. You didn't, I was wondering you didn't make that why connection? bridge.
1: I did not. Oh, I, it, I they sold him a Beetlejuice bridge. Oh. So anyway, the story ends happily when the canny and unscrupulous Earthmen, true to their nature, turn the tables on the snail people and wind up living happily ever after. Very humorous tale. I felt like the author had a lot of fun writing it. You could tell that there was a certain amount of and happiness just seeping out of the text. And it was fun, fun little story.
0: Oh, absolutely, a lot
1: of fun. So the story was written, as we said, by William Ten, which was actually a pseudonym of Philip Class. Philip was a technical editor with an Air Force radar and radio laboratory and was later employed by Bell Labs. So he falls squarely into the uh, 1940s, 1950s template of the highly technical person writing science fiction stories, although he was known for his humor. Most of the stuff that he published was funny. It was humorous, satirical stuff. He was definitely known for that sense
0: of humor. And this was Galaxy, right? This
1: was Galaxy Magazine, April
0: 1951. Galaxy would do a lot of humor, I remember. Right.
1: Which brings us to our secondary discussion here. Galaxy Magazine, let me give you a little background on them. The publisher at the time, which I believe was an Italian company, decided that they wanted to publish a couple of different magazines. And one of the magazines on their list was a science fiction magazine. But they were woefully ignorant of how the American publishing business worked. So they got H.L. Gold to be the editor of the magazine. He was an interesting guy, confined to his apartment by severe agoraphobia for at least the first 10 years of this magazine's existence. He had to do a lot of communicating over the telephone with his writers, publishers, and so forth. He would have people come to his apartment to visit him for discussions. But he was very much a forward thinker when it came to science fiction. As a matter of fact, he had a manifesto, a very famous manifesto, which was published on the back page of the first issue, which kind of explained his philosophy of science fiction and how Galaxy Magazine was going to be different from the other magazines in existence at the time. And if you will allow me a little dramatic license, I am going to read to you his manifesto. Jets blasting, Bat Durston came screeching down through the atmosphere of Philoblescom's Jazz, a tiny planet seven billion years from Sol. He cut out his super hyperdrive for the landing. And at that point, a tall, lean spaceman stepped out of the tail assembly, proton gun blaster in a space-tanned hand. Get back from those controls, Bat Durston, the tall stranger, lipped thinly You don't know it, but this is your last space trip. Hoof's drumming. Bat Durston came galloping down the narrow pass at Eagle Gulch, a tiny gold colony 400 miles north of Tombstone. He spurred hard for a low overhanging of rim rock, and at that point a tall, lean wrangler stepped out from behind a high boulder, six-shooter in a suntanned hand. Rear back and dismount, Bart Durston the tall stranger lipped thinly. You don't know it, but this is your last outside jaunt through these here parts. Sound alike? They should. One is merely a Western transplanted to some alien and impossible planet. If this is your idea of science fiction, you're welcome to it. You'll never find it in Galaxy. What you will find in Galaxy is the finest science fiction. Authentic, plausible, thoughtful, written by authors who do not automatically switch over from crime waves to earth invasions by people who know and love science fiction for people who also know and love it. So that was H.L. Gold's manifesto in the very first issue. And he held true to that. So Galaxy was one of the best-paying magazines, I think three cents a word, at the time. So that attracted many of the best writers of the day, all of the big names like Heinlein, Asimov, Everybody wrote for Galaxy. One thing that that magazine did that was somewhat in contrast to the other magazines is that they featured serials. Serials used to be a staple of science fiction magazines where a writer would write a novel and then it would be serialized in four parts. And that was back in the space opera days of the early 30s. But Campbell was somebody who discouraged that in Astounding Magazine and Uh, A lot of the other magazines kind of fell into that same style where it was mostly short stories, not too many serials. Galaxy magazine was always serializing stuff.
0: I think it's surprising that Campbell turned away from it because serials encourage your readers to stay with the magazine. Well, I wouldn't want to say that Campbell never did
1: serials. I'm sure he did of some of the more important stuff that came his way. Reading between the lines, it seems to me like Serialized novels was a hallmark of the pulpy science fiction novels of the early 30s. There were usually planetary romances and big space operas. Those were also the days, don't forget, of the movie serials. So the whole idea of keeping your readers tuning in from issue to issue, finding out what happened after the cliffhanger at the end of last issue's serial, I think that Campbell and others felt like that was... A cheaper form of fiction, perhaps.
0: So for Campbell, the change might have been more about image.
1: I think so. Because don't forget, what was Campbell all about? He was trying to have really good quality science fiction. And that would be the selling point of the magazine. So Galaxy, like many other magazines, started out in a digest format. We already talked in a previous podcast about the paper shortage during World War II, that hit the pulp magazine industry pretty hard. By 1950, most of the existing science fiction magazines and many of the pulps that survived had switched from the pulp format to a digest format. I should say that the first issue of Galaxy was October 1950. This was copying the extremely popular Reader's Digest. So if any of you remember the format of Reader's Digest, This is what was adopted by most science fiction magazines in the late 40s into the early 1950s. The tone of most of the magazines in that era went away from the half-naked woman being groped by a tentacled alien and rescued by a guy with a blaster. That sort of art, for the most part, went away. Not all of them. Well, I'm sure. Certainly Planet Stories was, was still around, and Planet Stories absolutely was still doing that. But at any rate, you and I have a little bit of a divergence of opinion here. No. Yes, we do. What began in the late 40s into 1950 was an explosion of titles of science fiction magazines. You had, I believe, you had eight in 1949, and then you had dozens a few years later. I
0: think a stat I remember was 1954, like 42, something yes. like that. Yes.
1: So you went from maybe eight to 42 in a matter of a few years. Imagine that. Imagine you were a science fiction writer, and you had 42 different publications to choose from to sell your works to. That meant that anything you wrote would almost guaranteed to be sold. So that's pretty fantastic. Galaxy was one of the leading-edge publications. Almost immediately, once it appeared on the scene... It was very successful. In terms of its reputation and its standing in the community, it almost immediately rivaled Astounding Magazine as the premier science fiction magazine of the day. And for good reason, because it published a lot of really high-quality fiction. Now, it stood apart from Astounding Magazine in its approach to science fiction. As we've talked to ad nauseum on this show about John W. Campbell... His stories were very hard science-based, a lot of problem-solving, The Competent Man, very much a positive, futurist orientation towards science fiction. Galaxy was much more character and people-oriented,
0: I think. Yeah, more the effect that science and technology had on people. And Beetlejuice Bridge is a good example of that. It's funny, and there was a
1: lot of humor published in Galaxy magazine, but the underlying point was how the appearance of aliens was not a matter of life and death for the planet Earth. It was how did Madison Avenue and Hollywood respond to the appearance of aliens, which is a very different sort of a question than you would have gotten in Astounding Magazine.
0: I love that idea in the story that you have this jaded professional who is using his usual bag of tricks,
1: Yeah, and Astounding Magazine was not unknown to have humor in it, but I think if this would have been an astounding story, it would have been some kind of a problem-solving story where the aliens land, and instead of a Madison Avenue guy, they send in an engineer to try to build something for the aliens— or come up with a translation device so they can understand the aliens, or something like that. It would have been much more of a technical story, and there's nothing at all technical about this story at all. There's not one bit of science or technology in this story. I mean, they don't even bother to explain how the life replicators worked, Yeah. except that they required atomic fuel in order to operate, and that's it. So Galaxy was... I don't know if the word softer science fiction is appropriate, but...
0: That's what's often used.
1: Right. It was a magazine that was distinct from Astounding and what had come before, but was every bit as good of a quality magazine as Astounding was, even in its best days. So it was an important development, and it came at a time when, as we said, science fiction was really taking off in the popular imagination I happen to think that there's several reasons for that. I think it was, to some degree, the respectability of science fiction increased after World War II when you had all these inventions like radar and the Germans building missiles. The atomic bomb was developed and science fiction writers predicted that. So I think there was a greater emphasis not only on science fiction coming out of World War II, but science in general. And I think the other thing that happened was that a lot of big mainstream magazines like Saturday Evening Post and Collier's were publishing science fiction stories by many of the top writers. Bradbury had a lot of stuff published in Saturday Evening Post. Heinlein got some stories published in those big magazines. So you've got a million subscription magazine and you publish a science fiction story. I think that had to have some influence on it. So what do you think? Am I off base here? Or what's your take on Galaxy and the beginning of what you call the Silver Age of science fiction?
0: I used to subscribe to a view that has been said in science fiction circles the more magazines you have, that more people see these covers and more people become interested and in buy it, the market grows itself. However, that is a theory that was espoused at the high point of the magazines, and hasn't happened since. So it's not a very good theory if it depends on just one single observation. Well, I could see
1: where somebody walked up to a newsstand, and I don't even know if they have newsstands anymore, but I remember the golden days of the newsstand where you'd walk in and there would be a huge assortment of magazines divided into sections. So if you were kind of a science fiction fan... Maybe not a big science fiction fan, but you'd read it and enjoyed it. But you didn't like robots. And there was magazines that had pictures of robots on the cover. You wouldn't even look at them. But you like spaceships. Oh, look, there's one with spaceships on it. You're more likely to grab the one with a spaceship on it. So maybe it was as simple as that, that if you had 10 or 20 magazines laid out on the newsstand, it would be the cover art that would attract your attention. And if it's only one or two titles, you might have walked past the two that were there because you just weren't attracted to the cover art. But if there's 20 of them, one of them is certainly likely to grab your attention.
0: Okay. Now, that is an attractive theory, and I think there's some merit to it. But I am now leaning more towards the idea that we had just come out of a very technological war. Prior to the war, there were some technological developments, radio television was discussed, new technologies. but Yeah, let's not forget, you mentioned television. Television
1: came in in the late 40s, and people began to have television in their homes. So at the same time that television was entering American lives, it was yet another example of this marvel of technology, this wonderful thing that had improved their life, coming at the same time as all these other developments.
0: I know I'm saying this in grand terms, but as a society... We're coming to grips with this constant onslaught of new technology. How do we approach the complications that these things bring with them? And the idea that technology is becoming a central part of life now, and this constant change that we're used to now is starting.
1: Well, yeah, it's the advance of civilization tied to technology. Think of all those pitches that were made at the World Expos where it's like the kitchen of tomorrow. GE would show their latest fridge and their latest stove and the latest conveniences for the housewife, the space age kitchen. That sort of thing was very common.
0: And in the middle of all this change in new technology, you would naturally be drawn to media that says this is what it would be like if we had space travel. This is how we would react to some weird new technology. In essence, teaching you how we might adapt to these new technologies, how life might be in the future, now that we accept it's going to continually change and we're going to have new devices all the time. I would argue that if the field of science fiction had stuck
1: to its Cambellian roots... And all of these magazines were filled with hard science fiction and problem-solving, the sort of science fiction that dominated 10 years earlier. I don't know whether that the field would have grown as much as it did, but the fact that people like H.L. Gold came in with much more accessible stories, funny stories, stories that did not demand a heavy level of technical involvement, stories that were more human in their orientation, That helped to popularize the field, I think.
0: I have never thought of the accessibility of Galaxy, but you're absolutely right. Compared to what the
1: Campbell magazines would have presented. I think that's a huge factor. So all of these things combined, I think. Now, where you and I diverge, you like to call this a separate silver age. Yes. Which in terminology, when you're talking about something like comic books have a golden and a silver and a bronze age. And that makes a certain amount of sense for defining the difference between the two eras. I like to look at science fiction from our period, from Gernsback to Roddenberry, from the 1920s to the mid-60s. I like to look at it as a bell curve, that it began with nothing in the 1920s, gradually built up to a peak in the 1950s, stayed at that level for quite a while, and then tapered off down to the 1960s when I talk about Golden Age, it's not merely popularity that I refer to. It's the quality of the writing. There's no question that John W. Campbell improved the quality of science fiction as editor of Astounding Magazine in the 30s and 40s. But I think the field really grew, really gained its greatest beginnings, at least, in the 1950s, because it broadened. Because you brought in writers who were not engineers, and scientists, they were writers. They went to college after World War II, and they got degrees in literature or journalism, and they came in as writers first. So in my opinion, if you said, what's the golden age of science fiction, I would have said the real golden age of science fiction was the 1950s, just based on the sheer volume and quality of the writing during that period of time. And here's a great example. So Yes, you had really good magazines like Astounding and Galaxy and others, but you also had Planet Stories. Planet Stories was going strong in the 1950s. If you wanted a bug-eyed monster groping a fair maiden story and stories of blasters and space opera, you had places where you can go get those stories as well. So I think that for the science fiction fan, that was truly a golden era.
0: The reason I call the 1950s a silver age is because I think there's a very distinct difference between the science fiction of the 40s and the 50s. Obviously, there's going to be some overlap, but with the arrival of the galaxy science fiction, I think it was, well, as you said, more approachable, appealed to wider audiences. The topics within, take your typical Campbellian science fiction of the 1940s. It's a problem-solving story. There's scientists and men doing something, often using vacuum tubes. When gold came along, people describe it as more people-oriented, but it was also more widespread. That science fiction stories had every part of society in them. I don't think you could imagine a Campbellian story of a tomato farmer, but you would in Galaxy. A tomato farmer in Galaxy finds an alien artifact.
1: Anything is possible. I would say almost anything is possible in Galaxy. We've touched on this, but there are a lot of stories of Campbell rejecting stories that went on to be published elsewhere to great acclaim. He was definitely outright hostile to certain ideas that went beyond the normal boundaries of science fiction, let's say.
0: I'm a lot more open to the argument that Campbell did shape Science fiction in the 40s. However, but he also
1: restricted it, I think.
0: Well, I was going to say, like the founder syndrome in a corporation. Good point. He becomes a gatekeeper, he rejects new ideas. Right. But to be fair, Astounding Magazine remained popular
1: throughout the 1950s. So Galaxy did not come in and push them aside. It was because the entire field was expanding in popularity that there was room at the top for another magazine. So Campbell and his style of fiction continued on well into the 1970s. I think he stepped down as editor in 71, 72, something like that. So throughout the 60s, he was still around, Astounding was still around, publishing the same sort of stuff. So it remained popular. With any sort of genre, you're going to have the hardcore fans who always want the same thing. So they probably didn't like all of the stuff that was being published in Galaxy. They wanted their competent men and their problem-solving stories. So there was a place for that. Yes. Steve, do you have any further thoughts on Galaxy or the early days of the Silver Age?
0: To me, the Silver Age is the the absolute apex. When I wanted to become a science fiction writer, I didn't want to become just a science fiction writer. I wanted to become a magazine science fiction writer In the 1950s. It was such an exciting time for science fiction. You finally had the big three, Astounding, Galaxy, and Fantasy and Science Fiction. And I could go on about that for a while, but we haven't really talked about Fantasy and Science Fiction yet, and we're going to, aren't we?
1: In the next episode, we will be talking about that particular magazine and its impact.
0: I look forward to it.
1: All right, that's it for episode 27. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky.
0: That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits.
1: Two guys from Milwaukee.